Good morning. Good morning to all of you watching online, different locations. Glad you're here. Thanks for having me. People are like, how long did it take you to get from Canada? I said, like, an hour and 40 minutes. We're not that far away uh, into Atlanta. Anyway, it's great to be with you. Uh, There is a tradition that we experience in my own family related to Christmas. Now, Christmas seems like a million years ago. It was only like five and a half weeks ago, unless, of course, you're still paying off your visa and it feels like yesterday. But five and a half, six weeks ago, uh, there has been a tradition that has happened in our family around stockings. Every single year in my stocking, and yes, I'm 48, and I still get a stocking, thank you very much. Every single year, there's something placed in my stocking that's rooted in my childhood. Though I was born in Toronto and grew up there for a period of time, most of my life was actually spent in Ecuador as a child. And so when I grew up in Ecuador in the 80s, I had deep homesickness, so I loved Ecuador and loved, I would never give up that experience. I had deep homesickness for certain things. And there was one thing as a child I deeply missed back home. And it's something that I actually don't think you probably have down here in the South, and it's ketchup chips. This is my favorite flavor of potato chips. They will be served in the new heavens and the new earth. I'm just assuring you uh, now. And this is a huge thing in Canada. We have them everywhere, and I longed for them. And so when I came back, my mother started the tradition of putting a bag of ketchup chips in my stocking to remind me that I was home and to remind me of the homesickness I experienced. Six weeks ago, I got a bag of ketchup chips in my stocking. I lead a church, five locations on the east side of Toronto. Many of you probably don't know, Toronto is the fourth largest city in North America, There's 6.4, 6.6 million people. It's the most multicultural city in the world, more than London, more than New York, more than Singapore. There is between 150 and 300 heart languages spoken every single day in our incredible city. The church that I help lead has over 55 nationalities and ethnicities in it. It's beautiful. It's a little picture of heaven before we get there. It's complicated, but it's awesome. But as I sit with so many people that have come from so many backgrounds, They say, I love being in Canada. I love being in Toronto. But then there's this pause. And they say, oh, but I so miss home. The reason why I want to enter into the book of Acts chapter 21 today is because actually homesickness is this critical piece that so many of us miss that connects us to longevity, obedience, sacrifice, and something we so desperately need in our culture called rest. Now, if you've been going with this church through the book of Acts, and you've been reading carefully, you know the last chapter, chapter 20, was filled with such sadness. Paul is saying to some of his closest friends, they're never going to see each other again. It's full of emotion. It's a long goodbye. It actually almost feels like a Christian funeral. There was pain. There was question. There was loss. There was anger. There was joy. There was hope. Because they were acknowledging that life is not the end. There is a part two. Just like Jesus was physically resurrected, so Paul and them would be also, and they would reunite. Their long goodbye was loss and love and pain and promise, hollowness and hope, loss And legacy was like losing a close friend. That's why Luke records below, as we're going to get into Acts 21, that we're torn or ripped away from each other. And now we are on the road with Luke and Paul, seeing almost like a travelocity plan. But there is a storm coming that will take Paul's life in the end. And so at this moment, 
we as fellow journeyers joined Luke and Paul. And it says in Acts 21.1, after we had torn ourselves away from them, we went out and sailed to Cause, and then the next day we went to Rhodes, and then Patera, and then we landed at Tyre, and our ship began to unload its cargo. And finding disciples, that's Christians there, we stayed with them seven days, and through the Spirit, notice this verse, very important, through the Spirit they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So they're traveling day and night, port to port, province to province. They come to Tyre, and they find an amazing group of Christians that have been there for years. And before we get going, we have to stop and ask ourselves the question, where did these Christians come from? And the answer is so striking. This group of Christians were actually formed by people who were running from their lives after the murder of Stephen. Now, do you see the power of this? Do you see the grandeur of this? Do you see the grand redemptive story that God is weaving? This church was planted and formed by people that Paul used to hunt, that Paul used to jail, that Paul used to kill, and now Paul, once known as Saul, is there as a Christian leader, greeting them, loving them. Enemies have now become friends and family through Jesus. Let's just say this again today. Nothing has the power to overcome racism. Nothing has the power to overcome religious hate. Nothing has the power to overcome suspicion ethnic blood feuds, political division, like the work and love of Jesus. And so he gathers with another group of Jesus followers. And what happens to Paul again? One group or a person within that community stand up, and with the spiritual gift of prophecy, they foresaw that Paul was going to face a terrible danger in Jerusalem. And it says through the Spirit, they urged Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And we need to camp here for a bit because this is actually confusing. This little verse is key because this whole passage that we're hanging out today is used, and ta- is used to talk about the spiritual gift of prophecy. Luke, if you've carefully walked with him, has infused the journey over land and sea with a weight of God's affirming his mission again and again, not just through the spiritual gift of teaching, not just through communal discernment, but actually through the New Testament spiritual gift of prophecy. So again, let's ask ourselves a series of questions. Are those people in the New Testament with the spiritual gift of prophecy the same as Old Testament prophets? The answer is a loud no. Can you say no with me? Say no. Some of you are like, yes. No, actually. In the Old Testament, prophets spoke and wrote the very word of God. And as you've started to talk about as a community, in the New Testament, those with the office of apostle had the same authority as Old Testament prophets. It was the apostles, not the prophets, in the New Testament that had the authority to write the words of the New Testament. If you were a prophet in the Old Testament, you had to get things 100% right. If you did not, you would die because you'd be considered a false prophet. So then the question is, okay, well, if it's not the same, what is not the office? What is the spiritual gift of New Testament prophecy? And why does it even matter? Here's what one author said. Prophecy is simply referring to something that God may suddenly bring to one's mind, something that God may impress or something someone's, in someone's consciousness as, in such a way that a person has a sense it is from God. It may be the thought brought to mind is surprisingly distinct from a person's own train of thought, or it's accompanied by a sense of vividness or urgency or persistence, or in some way gives that person a rather clear sense it is from God, not themselves. So in other words, let's just define it like this. The spiritual gift of prophecy in the New Testament can be a word, an image, even a scripture, an idea that's given by the Holy Spirit in community, either to speak about something that is coming or to actually do something in the room. But here's the difference. It will not be perfect. 
That's why Paul would write in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Oh, you test them all. Hold on to what is good. Keep that verse up there for a second. Hold on to what is good. As one person said, this implies that prophecies contain some things are good and some things that, of course, that are not good. So you have to hold on to what is good. So that could never be said about an Old Testament prophet or the authoritative teaching of a New Testament apostle. In other words, when prophecy is given in New Testament context and in contexts like us here today, they are not equal to Scripture. It is not the gift of teaching, and it must be tested because we like adding things. And this little group of verses we're in today is incredibly important as an example for us. So this group that they meet under the Spirit says, you're going to endure hardship, Paul, and we know this, and you should know this because of the last passage. What has the Holy Spirit said time and time and time again to Paul? Acts 20, 22. Now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen to me there. That's such a striking word. Compelled, bound, captive, pushed. I'm forced by the Spirit of God. I'm being guided by the Spirit Himself, and I must obey even if I do not know the outcome. The Holy Spirit is literally forcing me, this is Paul speaking, back to the most dangerous place. And if that's not wild enough, it's verse 23 in Acts 20. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are going to face me. Every time I show up to preach in another church, all over the known Roman world, people stand up with the spiritual gift of prophecy, and they say, every single time, hardship is coming. So all I know, he says, I'm going to suffer in Jerusalem, and I still have to go. And by the way, sitting here in a very nice auditorium with amazing people, do you notice the difference between this and health and wealth preachers that say, become a Christian, you'll never be sick? Become a Christian, everything will be okay? Become a Christian and you'll be wealthy. BMWs come in God's kingdom. The Holy Spirit comes and says, no, I am calling you not into that, but into suffering. Lean into this. Self-preservation was not the Holy Spirit's agenda. Self-preservation and comfort was not the driving motive. And Paul had come to the place where he wanted to do what Jesus told him to do. But then we have a problem. Just flip back to verse Chapter 21, verse 4. Because this church suddenly says, through the Spirit, they urged Paul what? Not to go to Jerusalem. And you're like, hold on, hold on, hold on. How can that be possible? Because the Holy Spirit has told Paul in almost every single church service, go to Jerusalem, suffer. Go to Jerusalem, suffer. Go to Jerusalem and suffer. Now the Holy Spirit shows up and says, oh, actually, by the way, don't go to Jerusalem and don't suffer. Is God contradicting himself? No. This is how we begin to see how the act of prophecy is good and can be misused. This is actually the human response of that congregation. God has spoken again and again, and suddenly there now is the addition, which is not right. It's actually, please, don't go, Paul. You're my friend. You're an amazing leader. You've done so much for the church. You've given up so much for Jesus. Don't go to Jerusalem. So, yes, the Spirit says you're going to Jerusalem, but we're adding it, actually don't. See, Paul's starting point with prophecies, there's always something going to be wrong that needs to be thrown out when prophecy is given. And the wrong was here. The human was here. Paul, the Holy Spirit says it's going to be so bad. So we're going to tell you not to go. Notice Paul's response. 
He doesn't say you're false Christians, you're false prophets, you're, you're demons that are speaking, you're liars. He just takes things in stride. It says in Acts 21, 5, when our time was up, we left and continued on our way and all the disciples and their wives and their kids accompanied us out of the city and there on the beach, we knelt and prayed. And after we said goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and we returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and, uh, and landed at uh, Palamas, and then we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a while. Can you just see that verse 7 for a sec? Just a little side note, a little boring thing, but so important. This reveals the incredible bond we have. There is nothing more powerful and more beautiful when you travel the world and you meet another Christian. Can you say amen to that? There's not just us being connected because we're part of the same movement or we wear the same symbols or we're trying to change the world. The amazing thing that we see time and time in the book of Acts that we must continue to recover in these very divisive, political, dangerous times is this. We share one Father. We have one Lord. We're possessed by one Spirit. And that is what lasts, nothing else. Well, the next day, verse 8, we reached Caesarea. We stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. Now, Philip, you might remember because you've been going through Acts He's all the way back in chapter uh, 4, 5, and 6. He's one of the seven deacons who's called to deal with the crisis. And, and in that moment, Saul begins the persecution. Uh, he runs for his life to Samaria. He's used by Jesus to do miracles, healing, casting out demons. He proclaims the story of Jesus, the message of hope, amazingly to his ethnic blood enemies. They begin to cross the line of faith. And then during an incredible revival, the church is exploding. Who would ever want to leave a church like that? The Holy Spirit shows up to Philip and says, you need to leave. He's like, this is so amazing. He says, you need to leave. I want you to go back to the Judean foothills. He goes back, he waits, and he meets with one man the Ethiopian eunuch. He leads him to Jesus. That man goes back, and I don't know if you know this, but that church that man founded is still functioning 2,000 years later. As we've been going through Acts, we should always be asking ourselves this question as a church. What in the world could make a Greek Orthodox Jew love a black Ethiopian African? What can overcome suspicion and culture in different worldviews and race and misapplied theology? It's Jesus every single time. Within 20 chapters, Hebraic Jews who didn't like Greek Jews start getting along. And then they start hanging out with their blood enemies, the Samaritans. And then North Africans from Libya and Middle Africans from Ethiopia and other places are included. Then Romans, then Greeks, then barbarians. And not only are they saying, oh yeah, 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 we're family. No, they start worshiping together. This is the agenda of our God. What worldview provides peace and forgiveness and love and hope that people are not only willing to die for, but willing to forgive those who do the killing? Luke shows us again and again, God is no respecter of any person. The obstacle of age, religious tradition, struggle, sin, race, ethnic origin, economic status, the physical condition of anyone will never bar anyone from the, man, from the family of God that's found in Jesus. So you've got Philip who's saved in Jerusalem, who establishes the church in Samaria with his enemies, who's led back to the Judean foothills to introduce the African continent to Jesus. He literally is Acts 1-8 incarnate. And now we find him older in life, hanging out with family. And then this is where things get interesting. You're like, it's not been interesting yet? No, it gets more. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And after we had been there a number of days, in other words, hanging out with the family, 
A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Agabus shows up in Acts now for the second time. The first time was Acts 11. Through the Spirit, he predicted a huge famine that would come, which happened during the reign of Claudius. But now Agabus comes and confirms what the Spirit has told Paul, Luke, and the community of faith the whole journey. He does it with way more flair, way more detail, way more power. He's actually the best example of New Testament prophecy. And this is what he says. Coming over to us, Agabus took Paul's belt and tied his own hands and feet and said, the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the non-Jews. Agabus uses image and drama, strange maybe to you, but incredibly common in a Jewish worldview. All through the Old Testament, when God did profound things, people did weird things. Let me just say as a side note, weird does not mean wrong in the Bible. Have you read your Bible? It's weird. It's about source, not weirdness. First Kings, one prophet tore his coat, and two symbolizing Solomon's kingdom would divide. Isaiah went around naked and barefoot to show how people would go into exile. You'd be like 911. He's like, I'm just doing the Lord's work. Ezekiel predicted the future siege of Jerusalem by literally laying on a model of Jerusalem. But there's a difference between those acts and this one. Anyone who reads ahead, and you will do this as a church, Agabus gets two things right and one thing wrong. See, actually, it's the Romans, not the Jewish people, that bind Paul. So is Agabus a false prophet? No, he is not, because he is using the spiritual gift of prophecy. And so this literally demonstrates how this works in a community. I love when one person said the prediction wasn't far off, but it had inaccuracies in detail that would have called into question the validity of any Old Testament prophet. On the other hand, this text could perfectly well be explained by supposing that Agabus had a vision of Paul as a prisoner of the Romans in Jerusalem, surrounded by an angry mob of his fellow Jews, and his own interpretation of such a vision or revelation of the Holy Spirit would be that the Jews bound Paul and handed him over to the Romans, and that's what Agabus sort of prophesied, but it wasn't correct. This is exactly the kind of fallible prophecy that fits the New Testament definition of congregational prophecy. It's reporting in one's own words something that has spontaneously been brought into mind. Some of you are going, uh-oh, I think I got that. Different sermon. Acts 21, 12 reads like this when we heard this. And the people that were there, we started pleading with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. By the way, do you notice who's saying that? That's Luke, the author of the gospel of Luke and Acts. And he's begging Paul, don't go. Paul says, responding, why are you weeping and are you breaking my heart? I am not only ready to be bound, but die in Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus. Don't make this harder for me. Luke, for real, stop. Don't try stopping God's will for me. This reflects the power and the pain of decision. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. Lean in. Oh, he says, I love you, but I love someone more. I love Jesus more. I need to go because others, so many of my fellow Jews and non-Jews, do not have the relationship 
with God that's been revealed by Jesus through the Spirit that we now just take for granted. Paul understood that everything he had done, the good, the bad, the successful, the accepted, the rejected, was done for the audience of one, not them. He was obsessed by Christ. Paul's legacy, Paul's impact was held by heaven, not history, not human hands. His friends didn't even fully understand the depth of his connection. Well, then it happens. The moment. Verse 14. When Paul would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's what? Will be done. How striking. That in this moment, they saw it's not pride, it's not insanity, it is of the Lord, and then they resolve, though they don't want to, by praying the prayer that has been uttered for 2,000 years by Christians from every stripe, culture, denomination, and background. Your kingdom come, your will be done, what? On earth as it is in heaven. I mean, this, of course, is imitating our Lord. I mean, Jesus himself, as he waited for the mob, as he waited for his best friend, one of his best friends, to come and kiss him and betray him, as he waited for Lucifer and the horde of the demonic being to show up and celebrate his coming death, did he not utter the same words where he said, not my will, but yours be done, Father? What came from his amazing obedience, of course, is our salvation. Literally, Paul is following now in the footsteps of Jesus. And then it's almost like this incredible epic moment just closes with these simple words. After this, we got up and we went to Jerusalem. So easy to preach a passage like this. But the question that we ask in our church, and I know it's a question you ask in this church, is this. Not, what did I just learn today? Hmm, That's interesting. What is the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, trying to say in this moment? Well, it's interesting because this passage begins to force the question, because at least at this site, this campus, we sang a lot about the role of the Holy Spirit before I got up and preached and begged him to come and invited his presence. But do you notice that the Holy Spirit, in this case, invites a move and direction that would actually violate what we hold most dear in this room and in the rooms that you're watching in, here or around the world? The great idol of the middle class is one thing. It's self-preservation. It's fueled by comfort. It tends to try to avoid risk. And the great underlying thing is passivity. And actually, if we step back and we want to be truly honest about it, it's about fear and control. Uh, There's a lot of us across this church that deeply love Jesus. But some of us who've done this a little bit longer, if we would be able to be a a little bit more of an honest moment, might say, though, though we love him, we don't trust him like we used to. We've become a little jaded or skeptical because of age or unmet expectations or another leader fell or our own sin or trauma or history. Question, 
a real question. What is the power to break through comfort, apathy, fear, control, unmet expectations, pain, sin, history? What could actually move many of us to not only love the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but actually move to trust Him, which is a vastly different thing? Listen to Paul's words. I am ready not only to be bound, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. If you're a Christian, and I know some of you here are not, but for we who are Christians in these gatherings today, could you actually say that line? What makes Paul different than a floundering Christian? What makes Paul different? What would bring someone in this room or the many rooms watching to really willingly say to friends, money, safety, power, reputation, personal agenda, theology, political opinion, comfort, it's secondary. To use the revelation analogy, what revelation analogy, what makes someone not lukewarm but hot and on fire and cold and refreshing? The dangerous answer in most churches is work harder. Give more. Be more committed. Go to five more Bible studies. Guilt and shame never produce Jesus people. It's one thing. It's one thing. It's relational. It's about being in love with Jesus. It's an all-consuming, ongoing, ever-remembering experience. It's actually, as a Christian, living in the past and knowing his death and resurrection is real. He actually came back from the dead. It's living in the present where the Spirit is with you. He comforts you, rebukes you, empowers you, gives you his fruit. He gives you his gifts. He guarantees your resurrection no matter what you're facing. And he reminds you that you are loved by the Father. It's living in the future that you actually know that what it says is real, certain, and it's going to happen. Let me put it another way. How homesick are you? Homesickness is not about the new heavens and the new earth. I don't care about streets of gold. I want to see Jesus. The golf course is great. I'll learn how to do it. I don't even know how. But Jesus is the one. Paul would say, do you long for him? Do you desire him? Are you homesick for the person who inhabits the real house? In the middle of Paul's run, this is why Paul could say what he could say in Acts. In the middle of his run, he penned these words in 2 Corinthians 5.8 that haunt me. We are confident, I say, I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Really? Really? How can we not say yes to Jesus when we really begin to know who he is, what he's done, what he's promised? It's not hard to love or submit or, or walk or obey when you really get to love him and know him. But here's the truth. Even in a church like this that is experiencing probably genuine marks of renewal, 
Even us who are deeply committed committed are more like Luke, who's pretty in, I would say, and saying, don't go. It's too what? Dangerous. Years ago, I was reading a Catholic uh, author named Henry Noun, who some of you will know. And he penned these words. Jesus is a very interesting person. His words are full of wisdom. His presence is heartwarming. His gentleness and kindness are deeply moving. His message is challenging. But do we invite him into our house? Do we want him to know us behind the walls of our intimate life? Do we want him to be introduced to all the people that we live with? Do we, do we want him to see us in our everyday life? Do we, want, do we want him to touch us where we're vulnerable? Do we want him to enter into the back room of our homes, the rooms where we prefer to keep safe and locked away? Do we want him to stay with us when it's nearly evening and the day is almost over, having listening to his words? Are we able to say that is interesting or are we willing to say, I trust you, I I entrust myself with my being, my body, my mind, my soul. I don't want to keep any secrets from you. You can see everything I I do and hear everything I say. I don't want you to be a stranger any longer. I want you to become my most intimate friend. I want you to know me. As I walk on the road and I talk to my friends, and also when I find myself alone with my inmost thoughts and feelings, and most of us, if we're honest, in the room or the room you're watching, I want you to come to know me, and not just as some companion but the companion of my soul say, seeing this, saying this, he writes, it's so easy since we're, we're fearful people and we don't easily entrust every part of ourselves to others. Our fear of being completely open and vulnerable is equal to our desire to be known and know. I even hide parts from myself, he writes. There are thoughts, there are feelings, there are emotions that are so disturbing to me. I prefer like to live, they don't even exist, but they do. If I do not trust myself, How can I trust myself to anyone else? My deepest desire is to be loved and to love others. And that is only possible only if I'm willing to be known and be known to others. Why does this all connect? Jesus reveals himself as the good shepherd who knows us intimately and loves us. But do we want to be known by him Or do we want him to freely walk by? Do we want him in every room of our life? Do we want him to see the good and the bad and the shadow side and light? Or do we prefer that he just sort of doesn't even enter the house? In the the end, he writes, the question is, do we really trust him? And are we willing to entrust every part of ourselves to him? Saying, John, why did you just say that? Here's why. Paul was so secure in Jesus, so in love with Jesus, so in proximity to Jesus by the Spirit. There was nothing hidden, not a secret. He did not pretend to be something he was not with him. And in that place, 
The idol of self-preservation and the shadow of fear had been put in their proper place because Paul wanted to be closer to Jesus than anything else. Not one of us will suffer. Not one of us will say no to our flesh. Not one of us will give up comfort. Not one of us will do the deep things of our movement unless there is this desire to be close to Jesus. Because when you're close to him, of course you'll suffer for him. How could you not? Because he suffered what? For you. And when you're so close to him, suddenly you realize that so much of what we spend our money and our time and we worry about is literally going to burn in eternity. Are you willing to say to the Holy Spirit who you sang to this morning, Holy Spirit, take me to the... Jesus, Jesus, give me a love for you that is not natural. And as my love grows for you, you reveal the Father to me. And in that moment, there will be a new level of sacrifice, obedience, and oh, here it is, everyone. Rest. When you know you're loved, you get to sleep again. Some of you here in this site and you watching in homes and in other locations and online around the world, uh, you are not a follower of Jesus yet. You um, might belong to another faith. You might be spiritual but not religious. You might be an agnostic or an atheist. You might be Christian-ish. You have Christian memory, but you're not a follower of our Lord. What does the Lord say to you today? Because he's just as concerned about you as he is about us. Years before Acts 21, Saul was involved in jailing and murdering people like me and many in this crowd. He drove us from our homes. He did it in the name of God and religion, by the way. He held the coats of those that murdered the first Christian, and while that Christian Stephen lay dying, he prayed that actually God would not hold that sin against them, and God answered that prayer. Jesus met Saul in a vision, changed him, and though he was an enemy, Jesus started this incredible conversation with Saul and moved him to become a messenger of life and not death. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, Here's what the living Christ says to you this morning. All of us, the best of us, the worst of us, the most religious and the not, are all actually Saul before he encounters Christ. Jesus comes through a word, a friend, a verse, a sermon, and says, yeah, you actually are separated from God. You can't get back because of sin. And then suddenly what happened with Saul is he realized who Jesus was. He realized Jesus had died in the place for him. He realized that he had the power to forgive. He was that loving, that merciful. He was moved to repentance. Saul, after he met Jesus for the first time, he fasted for three days, not to get God's attention. He was just regretting his, his life. So the same for you. Are you willing to meet Jesus and humble yourself? Call out for relationship, mercy, a second chance, purpose in this life, eternal life. In other words, let me put it like this. Stop. 
Be like Saul. Stop fighting heaven. Be like Saul. Stop relying on your education, your good works. Stop relying on any form of religion where you think you'll get the divine's attention by your actions. Don't rely on your family. Don't rely on your history. Definitely don't rely on your good looks. They disappear. Some of you rely on your rebellion, your self-sufficiency, your sexual prowess, your money, other gods. In this moment, the living Jesus says, no, I have something that is much better than any of that. There was a guy named um, Mark Shepard who was at Harvard Kennedy School of Government when he became a Christian. And he suddenly came to his awareness that he needed Jesus when he realized how sinful he was. But I love his description of sin. He says sin in a common usage was a joke at Harvard. It was a word used for pleasurable things that prudish people labeled as bad. This is not what I mean by sin. Sin, he writes in my experience, is rooted in an overwhelming pride. When I enter the world, I want to be better than people around me. More impressive, more accomplished. To be recognized, too. When mixed with the academic environment of Harvard, this sinful tendency became choking and toxic. Collectively, it led me and my friends to bottom line thinking, a culture of celebrity who, for people who succeed and worthlessness for those who didn't. It actually turned Harvard's greatest strength, its brilliant people, into a source of envy and anxiety. In my life, I have seen this way of leading, thinking lead to depression unfruitfulness, a desire to quit academics, and even take life itself. He simply writes, sin is self-destructive. Saul, before he encountered Jesus, was profound, intellectual, brilliant, arrogant, and lost. Some of you, the Lord is confronting your trust in anyone but Jesus. And he's saying, no, come home. If you want to meet Christ, I'll lead you to that in a moment. But for us who are followers of Jesus, the radical, good, beautiful, dangerous prayer to pray in this service, after 21 days of fasting and prayer, is this. Holy Spirit, give me the ability to so love Jesus. I'll go anywhere he asks, even if it includes suffering. Help love to drive out fear. So I'm going to ask you to posture yourself any way you want. I, again, I come from a different tradition than you, so you might want to open your hands if you're willing to pray. You want to, might want to kneel. You might want to cover your face. You might want to stand. And I'll lead Christians first and then those who want to accept Christ and then we're going to respond with the Lord's Supper. So let's just pray like this. In the name of God the Father who called us before the beginning of time. In the name of God the Son who's praying for us at this moment, died for us, has risen from the dead, is seated at the majesty of God and all things are under his feet. 
in the name of the Holy Spirit who comforts us and rebukes us and holds us and lets us know we're children of God and is the love of God, the Father, found within us. For we who are followers of Jesus, um, thank you for your love. We're deeply thankful. But the truth in the room and in all the rooms is, Jesus, and you know this, we're so fickle. It's so hard not just to love you, but to trust you. And so only pray this if you can. Say, Holy Spirit, give me a love for Jesus that's not natural. Make me homesick for him. So if it's blessing or curse, if it's hardship or not, I'll just say yes because I love him so much. Produce in this church a love that casts out fear. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy. And for others of you, you just pray this. I have trusted in myself. I have trusted in my education. I have trusted in other gods. I have trusted in my rebellion. You fill in what you've trusted in. And you just say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I want life, forgiveness, purpose, hope. I will not fight you. I want to follow you. Have mercy and make me clean. I say yes to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Tell me what now to do next. It's fitting that we end this moment with communion. And in your tradition, by the way, if you didn't get elements, you can put up your hand, ushers will bring them to you. But I just, I wanted to say this. This is what we say in our church real quick. Don't lose the moment. There's no better fitting way to respond to this message than communion. The scriptures are clear. We remember what Jesus did on his life, with his life, death, and resurrection. We, have you thought about this? Hundreds of millions of Christians have done this in the last 24 hours. Isn't that incredible? In almost every country on earth, they symbolize the death, the broken body of Christ, the blood of Christ spilled. We're to remember. But it's not just an act of remembering. Because the word communion means to commune with, to be with. And the worship leader, when he got out here, he said, where two or three gather in my name, I am what? Present. Jesus is about to serve you communion. He's in this room. There's a place where we remember. It's a place where we commune. And then this is the most beautiful thing. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. There is a day coming, everyone. You will never take the Lord's Supper or communion again because you'll be with him face to face. This reminds you that homesickness will be resolved. So in this moment, Lord, bless the elements. Meet us as we take them. Help us to walk in its way. Amen.